Well, good morning. Last week we uh, spoke of a kingdom orientation that allows us to navigate the everyday questions of life. And so I kind of wanted to, I guess I got a two-part series here, and I, I don't know that I planned it that way. Uh, this week we're going to explore the busyness of life in our culture as a particular example and see how we can come up against this very important everyday question with a kingdom perspective. So before we start, and maybe that's relevant to you, we'll see, the busyness of life. But before we start, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth with these, your people. Lord, thank you for this worship team who can lead us there. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, as we consider your kingdom, as we consider this time between your ascension and your return, would you enlighten our hearts? Would you help us to understand uh, what you want from us and how to go about it, Lord? Help us to not be deceived by Satan's ploys in this world, but, Lord, to realign our hearts continually to your great vision uh, for our lives and for your kingdom. Pray this for your name's sake. Amen. So, I was meeting with Christy and Christy, and we were talking, and you know, I thought I'd ask him a question. So I was like, what's the burden that everybody's feeling? You know, I thought maybe that would give me something for a sermon. So I'm like, what's the burden? And they sit there for a minute and they said, I don't know. Everybody's just really busy. And I thought, that might be a good topic. So the sermon will go more on the topical side of things. And we'll kind of be looking at, you could reference last week's as a starting point And now casting that in light of some particular issue that we have. So we're going to kind of work through that a little bit. Um, well, that struck a chord in me. Uh, I know that I've been a really busy season for about 20 plus years, and uh, it, it, it doesn't look like the season's about to end anytime soon. Uh, maybe not until I'm in a, nursing room, in, in a nursing home, if I can make it that long. And there's a big if there, I think. Uh, I've yet to meet anyone in the United States who responds to the question, how are you, with, well, for starters, I'm not very busy. Uh, typically, we get the opposite response when asking someone how they are. Uh, and, and just, I want to tell you before, this is a big problem in my own life, as anybody close to me uh, would attest. Um, and so, it's not a message where somehow I've reached the summit and I'm bending over to cast a rope to pull everybody else up. It's kind of more like I got a foothold about a foot and a half off the ground, and I'm looking for the next grab. So uh, that's where I'm at in all this, just so you know. And, and, and many of you will be further up that wall, and some might not have taken the first step yet. Um, busy's what most of us are. I talked to enough of everyone to know that's kind of a common crescendo to everybody's lives. No matter where we live and what our background, busy seems to be a constant. On a normal day, my life feels like something between a perpetual summer camp and a three-ring circus. It's like I am quickly rushing from one thing through another thing and on to the next thing, and it doesn't seem to stop until my head finally hits the pillow. Um, it wasn't long ago, and this will be comical, that futurists predicted that one of the main challenges for the coming generations would be too much spare time. In fact, in 1967, uh, testimony was given before a Senate subcommittee claiming that by 1985, the average work week would just be 22 hours. <laughs> yeah, they do a lot of important stuff in those Senate subcommittee meetings, I'm pretty sure. And instead, this is what's happened. Americans lead the industrialized world in annual work hours. No one works as much as we do. Our annual hours have increased from 1,716 in 1967 to 1,878 hours a year in 2000. So quite the opposite has happened. British workers put in an extra hour every day compared to Germans or Italians, but that's still almost an hour less a day than Americans spend working. So I guess we win? <laughs> or does that mean we're losing? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, there are two realities of this modernized, globalized, urbanized world that we live in that for most everyone else in human history, 
they wouldn't have been able to fathom it. And that is the complexity and the opportunities that this particular world offers us today. The ability to cheaply go anywhere we want to go, that's a recent development. Uh, the ability to get information and entertainment anytime we want, no matter where we're at, that's a very recent development. Matter of fact, the ability to stay up well, to easily stay up well past sundown is a fairly recent development. Sometimes we don't stop to think about these and consider what those costs might be to such seeming luxuries in this life. Our lives, because of things like this, seem to have no limits, right? We eat most of what we want. I know I do. We buy most of what we want. And we say yes to way too much of what we want. In all our lifetime, we've seen an expansion of the opportunities for children, for seniors, opportunities for leisure, opportunities for travel, for education, opportunities at church and for different churches, opportunities in our local communities and even around the world to make a difference. No wonder we're so busy, an awful lot of opportunities for us. Alongside of this explosion of opportunity in the modern world, is the mind-boggling complexity. At the end of the day, there has to be a programmatic way to deliver all these opportunities. And we, as ones who receive it, have to find a way to go and latch onto them and receive them. And so this means copious amounts of education, which one and how, right? Registration, orientation, communication, transportation, asphyxiation. That's a byproduct. And so... Our busyness is a unique problem in many respects, unique to our age and time, particularly the way that we experience it. I want to take a moment, and you'll see on your, if you're following on the, the outline, I want to take a moment to kind of look at the anatomy of this problem, you know. What is the actual problem with busyness? Um, I think first and foremost, the problem is that things in this world aren't right, if we're really honest doesn't take a theologian to discern that the things in this world aren't just right. Uh, and for us believers, we need to approach that with a vision of the way God has envisioned this world, right? We need to understand what's not right with the world with the vision that God has given us. A vision where central is his personal presence pervading all of this world. His image bearers filling all the world. His just rule over all of creation. His perfect peace. And when I say peace, it's going to be synonymous with wholeness or shalom. So I might use any of those three. They're all the same thing. Peace, shalom, wholeness, things set right. Pervading all things in this world. That's the vision of God. And we also know as believers how this vision was abandoned, right? We don't often think about this when we go about our lives, but I want to make it real clear. You know, I had a professor point out to me at one time, of all the books written on discipleship, I've yet to read one that talks about Satan, the world, and the flesh, and how all those play out in everyday life. It was a big concern for him, and I see why. Uh, not knowing that story, it's too all... It's all too easy to play a part in that story unknowingly, unwittingly. Well, Satan deceived man into replacing the hymn of God that was central to all the wholeness and everything we talked about before. Satan exists and says this, you do not need God. Take from this world whatever it offers you and rule over yourself. And the result was that every man did what was right in his own eyes. We'll go over that construction a couple of more times. But herein lies the problem. We worship and serve, we live for creation and the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. It's interesting, our current conception of sin in our particular culture and evangelicalism really focus on personal morality, right? What I do or don't do, that's an interesting focus and one that I would say is not necessarily biblical. 
personal morality is important. But the problem at its core was always the heart. It wasn't do this or not do this. You know, if, if do this or not do this was the problem, then the solution would be don't do this and do this. But that's not the problem and it's not the solution. Jesus didn't come to teach us the right thing to do. That wasn't the problem. The problem was much more pervasive. The problem was our hearts. And this answer dictates a very different path than behavior modification. After all, who has control over their own heart, let alone somebody else's? The answer to the problem of busyness in the end won't be the personal morality of not busyness. It's not one or the other. The message isn't about how you could not be busy because that's what God really wants for you. Matter of fact, I'd tell you this, in light of the current kingdom situation, in light of a world that's not right, I would say if you're actually not busy at all, you're probably being disobedient in some way. For the Lord is working now and so are we until his return. So busyness is a reality that really probably should exist on some level in everyone's life. The question will be, who are we busy with, and what is the why behind our strivings? You ready? The question is, who are we busy with, and what is the why behind the drive that keeps us striving the way we do? The root of the problem at the end of the day is cosmic treason, correct? God has been treated as superfluous and relegated to the periphery, move him out of the way, while man and his pursuits have been made central. You know, we're busy creating our own solution to the problem of a world not right and the vandalism of shalom, of the wholeness that we desire in our life. Rather than seeking God's solution of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, we labor to produce our own solution. So I'm going to give a quick sketch of spiritual warfare just in light of what we're going to put it together real quick, kind of concise. So, on this sketch of spiritual warfare, we do have to acknowledge that uh, it includes the legitimate demands of the world, right? The world demands that things need to be set right. And the world is not wrong in demanding such things. We would concede to the same, wouldn't we? Things aren't right, and they need to be set right. However... Satan's illegitimate appeal to our flesh through the world and its opportunities is this. Take what this world offers and set things right for yourself. So that's the story of Satan. Take what the world offers you, what your flesh longs for, and make things right for you and for yours. This notion of using the world's cheap substitutes for shalom, this stands at the center of the corrupting ways of broken creation and rebellious humanity. And man's instinctive fleshly response is what? Sin. Our fleshly response to answer that call with what the world offers is sin. Sin's the use of our freedom to serve ourselves. I can freely go and pursue all things that claims it will give me some level of wholeness or peace in this life. So rather than serve God and serve others, we serve ourselves, seeking to take hold of every opportunity we have in this life. Oftentimes, labeling that Christian or good. It's the disposition of the heart that matters. What are you striving for? Well, at the end of this, Pride is what that's called. Pride is an exalted view of yourself, right? Pride is, uh, lies at the center of much of our busyness. And I'm going to kind of outline pride just a little bit and show how pride lies oftentimes at the center of our, of our busyness. And this was a hard one for me to go through because I think maybe every one of them hit me. Maybe, oh, one didn't. Good, I saved it for last. So I, I will be the one who is successful at one. And... Uh, so the first one's people-pleasing. This is a symptom of pride, right? We're really busy because we're trying to do too many things. We're trying to do too many things because we say yes to too many people. We say yes to too many people 
because we want others to like us and fear their disapproval. Doing something to love others is one thing. Doing something so others will love you is something altogether different. So much of our busyness at the end of the day, I know mine, comes down to wanting to meet other people's expectations. So whoever's demanding the most and the loudest, that's who I condescend to serving. I'm sure God loves that heart. I don't think he does. At the end of the day, I'm the center of that, right? That people will like me. Praise, that's another one. Praise is very similar, except instead of being driven by fear of someone, of, of someone not liking you, it's more motivated for a desire for personal glory, right? I get to step in and be the hero of somebody's need, of somebody's urgency, often a driving factor in our busyness. Another one's performance evaluation. There are some interesting facts on performance evaluation. Did you know almost all employees pretty much across the board over-evaluate their value for their company and whatever they do? <laughs> it shouldn't be surprising, but uh, that's a reality, which means probably all of us have a tendency to the same, to, to overrate the importance of our performance, right? And regarding ourselves so highly and the things that we do is so important, we kind of assume this, right? Ready? If I don't do this, no one will. And we act as if everything somehow depends on us. Everything's on the line and it all falls on me at the end of the day. And you know, it's a, there's a funny truth. Uh, you're only indispensable until you say no. <laughs> Once you say no, you're no longer indispensable. And so we continually say yes, because there's a sense in all of us of wanting us to be indispensable to any given thing the next one proving yourself you know I realized uh, as I continued in my life that I kind of had some father issues uh, I realized I was motivated a lot of times in my life by wanting to prove myself somehow to my dad and my family but we try to prove ourselves to all kinds of people whether it be bosses or friends or children you name it there's all kinds of people we want to prove ourselves to uh, and then this one this was a tough pill to swallow pity because let's face it, people feel sorry for us when we're busy, don't they? Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. And, and, and I don't think we'll seem nearly as impressive and, and people won't ooh and awe ah over our burdens as much if we don't have them. And I think at the end of the day, on some level, we enjoy the sympathy we receive for in, enduring such heroic responsibilities on a regular basis. You see, all these are rooted in pride. Power. I'm just going to rattle off some power. I need to stay busy because I need to stay in control. Or we'll say in this, I need to stay on top of it all. Yeah, good luck. Perfectionism. Oh, man, they just keep coming. I can't lay it up or I'll make a mistake and it won't be right. Well, nothing's right. So <laughs> the idea that somehow it's all going to be right is a pretty crazy notion. The idea that you could make it right, even crazier. How about position? I'm really busy because of my position, you know, I have a job that's very demanding, you know, very high-level job, and I'm a high-level person, and so, you know, my position really requires me to be busy all the time. There's another one. Or how about prestige? If I keep working hard, if I stay busy, it I'll finally be somebody. I'll finally matter. I'll finally arrive. I'll accomplish what says I've done good. Uh, read something that was really interesting. It said, the only thing worse than failing to realize any of your dreams is seeing them come true. <laughs> that would be worse than failing to realize them. And the reason is, is that uh, you were meant for something more than your dreams in this life. So uh, don't settle for them. And here's the one that I don't struggle with. Yes. Yes. All the other ones I do, there's no doubt. I'm just not a big Facebook social media guy. <laughs> so posting. <laughs> So I, I think the reason I don't struggle with it is because I'm so busy with all my other dysfunction. I just, I just don't have time for this one, you know? So, you know, it's almost like a, you almost have to have one that you don't struggle with if you struggle with all the rest. Well, this one's mine, okay? But I'll tell you, uh, in one that doesn't struggle, sometimes it's easier to see, sometimes, how controlling that can be. 
posting for people, which kind of becomes outposts for the glory. I look through it every once in a while just because it's comical to me because it's almost like everybody's like, look at how awesome our life is, you know? And, and the coolest things in life that we go do, we post and we get a selfie of how happy we all are because we've made it. <laughs> kind of a crazy occupation altogether. I get to cast stones because I'm not over there, but you know. So these are oftentimes our root motives, the pride that's driving us in our busyness. But I also want to look at something else. I'm not going to let up just yet. These might be root motives, but what are our strategies? What strategies do we employ to deal with the vandalism of shalom, of the incompleteness of our lives? What are some of those patterns and strategies we continually employ? And I have to admit, I literally employ all of these at different times as different strategies all the time. The difference is I become aware of it. Now that I become aware of it, it really is frustrating. So I'm just going to warn you, once you become aware of it, it won't become more fun uh, doing these things. It'll kind of ruin it for you. Uh, the first one's strategies of detachment. And this is interesting. This one actually gets noblized a lot in Christian circles as the guy who's got it all figured out the girl who's got it all together. So in these strategies of detachment, I don't want to look at the mess that's our world. And I don't want to look at the brokenness of our life. I want to stay positive. I want to look at the good things. And instead, I'm going to do my best to engage in all the bro- disengage in all the broken places. That's the first thing, right? The things I can't fix, I need to disengage from altogether and pretend like they're not there. And then I'm going to try to control all the things that I think I can. So detachment and control. This is a way that we, this is a strategy that we employ. So focus on the things I think I can change and ignore the things that are broken that uh, are really frustrating, right? That way I don't have a whole lot of need. I got things under control, right? And then I attempt to control the things I can, like people, control people, control things, control circumstances, control my body, take control of my body, right? That's a real popular one now. Uh, And all of it's in an effort to avoid the chaos, the pain, and the ache that comes from being a broken person in a broken world. For many people, and it's often sold as the good in Christendom, maintaining the illusion of control is one of the greatest idols of the heart. So, if you got everything under control, you're living in detachment. Because there ain't nobody in this life, in this world, that has everything under control. (laughs) I see some of y'all laughing. That's good. Because it's comical at the end of the day (laughs) that we would have everything under control. The next one, so the next one, this is, is, and really you should know the ones you're more inclined to. I just want to tell you. So if there's one you're more inclined to, write it down. That's a battleground for you. Here's mine, all right? Strategies of distraction. We look away to the bright, shiny things of the world. (laughs) that draws our attention away from the reality that we don't want to face. Instead of control, we seek to escape, to self-medicate, to numb ourselves to the pain. In fact, I don't know if you realize it, but we in this particular time in history are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated people that have ever roamed the face of the earth. This is a pretty popular tactic for us escapism we busily reach for cheap shalom substitutes right and we busy ourselves with them shopping food sex alcohol tv productivity achievement see that gets to be one too that is a uh, workaholism is a form of escape so uh, um, achievement applause we twist good things and we make them needed we take things that are graces in this world and we make them become dependent upon them. And we anesthetize ourselves to them, at least for a little while. The next one, and I've struggled with this one too, strategies of despair. We feel, and, and this one's going to reveal my process, ready? We feel completely overwhelmed by the brokenness of our lives in this world. And despair comes when all of our efforts for control lost and our attempt to escape leaves us empty so we give up to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness 
we lose the capacity to dream for a better future. And we despair of this life. I heard a testimony just this weekend of a brother in the Lord who committed suicide at 55 years old. Heartbreaking that a brother in the Lord has lost sight of the hope that we have in Christ and could have despaired to the point, to that point. It's heartbreaking. And then finally, strategies of destructiveness. We respond to the reality of this broken world by becoming participants in it. We lash out. We finally had enough. Can't beat them, join them, right? Some of our destructiveness is overtly self-destructive behavior, right? Hostility towards someone or something, exploiting other people. And sometimes, I'm going to hit some others here, it's in tasteful, discreet destructiveness like gossip or lying. We've been bit by this world and so we bite back. And often these strategies are all employed at many times. Ready? The world is not as it should. And so my first tactic is disengage from things I can't control and lay hold and control the things I can. And then I realize I don't have control of anything at all, so I escape. Hit the eject button and escape. Anesthetize myself as long as I can so I don't have to feel the pain of all that until I realize in the end that wave that I know is going to overtake me builds to the point where I can't hold it back anymore, and boom, you launch into despair and the inability to hope for something greater. And then at the end of that, you finally say to heck with it. And you join right along. These are the strategies often employed. These are the things that oftentimes keep us busy in all of our pride and the things that motivate. Anatomy of a problem was hard with this one, so I, I thank you for bearing along with me. I know that's a lot. But uh, sometimes assessing the problem is the thing we don't spend enough time doing. And when we don't, we never get to the right solution. The problem with these strategies at the end of the day is that they actually work. That's the biggest problem. Never fully, never finally, but enough, just enough to keep us coming back to them. This was the problem with all of Israel's idols, by the way. They prayed to an idol for it to rain, and every once in a while, darn it, it rained. They made oblation to a fertility god. Sometimes they conceived. Never mind that uh, the result wasn't because that these supposed deities had any power. And this is the funny thing. The Israelites knew they didn't have any power. Just like we know. But all they cared about at that moment was that it worked. That's all they cared about. They were pragmatists. Escapism works for a little while, guys. Disengagement control does work for a little while. You'll get a little bit of satisfaction out of that, just enough to keep you coming back, like a dog returns to his vomit. Our strategies and substitutes at the end of the day, and we all know it, they'll never give us the shalom, the wholeness we're looking for. No matter how busy we work at them, but often all that we care about is that they work, even for a little while. <laughs> and we rationalize sometimes, if I work a little bit harder, maybe it'll work a little while longer. Well, here is where our best efforts go wrong. Jeremiah 2.13, and I'm just going to read 2.13, go back, look at context, but very succinctly, the two problems get outlined right here and where our problems are with busyness because it's not busy or not busy. That's not the problem. The Lord suggests in Jeremiah 2.13 that the people have gone fundamentally wrong by committing two sins. Two sins. First sin, the Lord says, they have forsaken me. 
the spring of living water. In effect, what God's saying is, I'm the only one who can meet your deepest need. I'm the only one who can bring you the shalom you so desire. And you have forgotten me, your only chance at it. It's funny, I started thinking about it. What's the first things to go when we get busy? (laughs) First things, almost universally, right? Spiritual disciplines, like I just start lopping those off like some kind of ancillary thing that, that isn't the most important central thing, right? I'm too busy, I'll just, ready, and I, I'll dress it up better than lopping them off, ready? Yeah, I'm not really giving myself the time of just intense prayer. I'm really more of a pray-as-you-go kind of guy. Oh, I'm with you. <laughs> and it goes on and on, it really does. I can dress that up anyhow I want, but the first things that typically go are those things that should be central. Second, the Lord says, they have not only forgotten him, the fountain of living water, but they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In ancient times, people would dig a pit or they would craft a vessel and they would collect and hold rainwater. It was their solution for rain. And employing this metaphor... What uh, Jeremiah is saying through the Lord is that uh, he's addressing the human tendency to satisfy our thirst through our own resources, to make life work on our own terms, right? That's funny, that sounds just like spiritual warfare we outlined earlier, doesn't it? In our own resources, through the things that this world offer, we provide our own solution to all that is wrong with this world. We build broken cisterns and we forsake going to the Lord who is the answer to those things. There's a problem with our busyness, not because we're busy, but but when we forsake the things of the Lord and we become crazy busy building broken cisterns, that's a problem with our busyness. Who are we doing it for and why are we doing it? Not that we are. We'll all be busy in this life, guys. That's a reality. The question is, who are we busy with and why? There are stories each of you live, and I look in this diverse congregation. It is a very diverse congregation. And I know this. There are some people in here who have greater demand for their time than others. How many kids do y'all have now through the office? I mean, seriously. I've got two kids. And you know what? Two's not as demanding as five. That's a reality. It's a reality in their life, it's a reality in mine. And two is not the same as none. There are different demands for each person in this room for their time. They're not the same. Different people have different jobs. While that is often an excuse, my position, it's also a reality. That's what makes it a good excuse. But it's still just an excuse. But some jobs demand more than other jobs. That's a reality. We all have different capacities than others. Mark Hardy has far more capacity than I'll ever have. I watch him. And I watch him not losing it, doing a whole lot of work all the time. And he's not losing it. I couldn't do it. I'd break. I have a different capacity than he does. Maybe I'll have it when I'm (laughs) (laughs) 70-ish. But at 40-ish, I don't. (laughs) Others have greater managerial skill. I hate to use him again, but he's got greater managerial skill than I do. He's able to manage his business a lot better than I do. I might not ever measure up to that. I'm not asked to either, by the way. And he smiled because he knows I'm not. God doesn't tell us to be like this person. So we all have stories that we live, and they're all unique, right? But the thing that matters for all of us is the same. What story are we living into? Are we living into the story that Satan has cast? Are we seeking first our own lives on Satan's terms? Making a way for ourselves, taking what the world offers, and finding our own shalom? Are we seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness? Let me give you 
a term for righteousness. It doesn't mean personal morality because that's not necessarily what that term means. It means setting the, seeking the Lord's set rightness. Seeking the things, the vision of God for this world. Seeking the set rightness of God on His terms where He is central. No one can serve two masters. You can't serve the Lord and serve the opportunities and demands of this world. Because you'll neglect one and love the other. In your busyness, which one are you neglecting and which one are you loving? Or you'll be devoted one and despise the other. Whose story are you living into in your busyness? That's a crucial question. Well, I'm going to give you homework, and I'm going to go into our, I'm right on schedule, man. Praise the Lord. And we even got to do a full set of songs, Mark. Praise God. Cease striving and know that he's God. That's your overall application. I'm going to look at it in three parts, and I'm going to give you homework. I want you to go and look at Psalm 46, where that comes from. And I want you to look at the basis for which he finally works up to cease striving and know that I am the Lord. And when you look at that basis, you'll see it's in remembrance of all that God is and who he is and all that he intends to accomplish. Matter of fact, there's even an eschatological and end time view that goes along with that psalm. So that's really your homework. But I'm going to hit three very wildly practical things for us, okay? The first one is priorities. Our lives today, many of our lives, have absolutely no limits. We're pulled by whatever makes the loudest demand at any particular time. And what is necessary, the things that are most important, what really ought to matter, usually gets put on the side for uh, what matters right now. What ought to matter is always in light of the end, just like we talked about last week, right? of the vision of God for this life. What really is matter, mattering to us at any given time, it's usually very short-sighted. And unfortunately, those are usually things that drive us because we're responding in our flesh, not with wisdom. We're just responding. Urgency here, I gotta hurry up, come over here and do it real quick. Oh, I'm multitasking which means I do something really quick here and then here and then here and then here and then I go back. There's really no such thing, so don't ever say you're a multitasker again. You're just not good at focusing on any one thing ever. Just being honest, the human brain doesn't really work that way. So we've just made up something to make what we're doing sound good. I'll point this out. Y'all know the story of Martha Mary. I'm not going to go through it, but here's the point. Martha was just distracted by a priority that was good and godly. She was distracted by hospitality. The text actually says she was distracted. The evidence of that is that what did she do in her distraction? She complained about Mary not doing the same. And what does Jesus tell us? Mary chose the better priority. She chose the priority to commune with Jesus, even over one of the highest priorities in their culture, which is hospitality. We have to prioritize. We have to make it our mission to stay on mission in our busyness. And this means coming to grips with three truths. We've got to set priorities because we can't do it all, number one. You can't do it all, I'll just tell you. Jesus in his earthly ministry, we get all kinds of records of all the miracles he did and the people he healed, but he didn't heal a ton of people. People were making demands of him in his, in his ministry that he continually didn't fulfill. And yet in John 17, we find this. Father, I have glorified you because I've done the work that you gave me to do. He didn't do all the work. He was a man and he was limited in his humanity. He did the work the Father gave him to do. Kevin DeYoung said this quote, which was scary to me. Mark will know this is a struggle of mine too. The people on this earth who end up doing nothing are those who never realized they couldn't do everything. They're the ones that do nothing. If you're a multitasker, just stop. Number two, 
I've got to set priorities if I'm to love others most effectively. This means not only setting priorities for the non-negotiables, this thing such as the communion with our Savior and all that that means, but it also means, Drucker calls this, posteriorities. It means paying attention to the things that really need to be on the end of your list that you likely won't even do at all. Pay attention to keep those where they belong. Don't let them, because they clamor louder than any others, come to take first place in your priorities. So, unless God intends us to serve only the loudest, neediest, most intimidating people, we need to plan ahead, we need to set priorities, and we need to love more wisely. Third one, and this is a tough one. I must allow others to set their own priorities as well. Fighting a misaligned busyness is a communal activity, guys. We've got to do it together. It's not enough to set priorities ourselves if we don't respect that others must set them as well. And this is how we can really help each other out. I'm going to give some examples of how this plays out. Don't always expect the lunch or dinner request to work. How about that? We tried it, didn't work, and that's okay. Don't, and I do this. Don't get upset when what do you think email, text, or call doesn't get answered. Don't get upset about that. Don't be offended if your need doesn't go to the top of the pile. Don't think it's rude if some people have less availability for you than you have for them. That's a big one. I'm always available to them. And now I need something, they're not available to me. Eh, not everybody's lives are exactly the same. Maybe you got a lot more availability than they do. <laughs> Understand that people often say I'm busy because saying I have other priorities right now and you're not one of them would be a little too painful. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. And we need to acknowledge this as we set priorities in our lives and seek to do the work that the Lord's given us to do. It's interesting, those margins will help us to even have the capacity to help the stranger on the side of the road that needs help. They actually open up opportunities for spontaneity. But until you have priorities set, you won't, have, you won't be able to do that either. And in doing things like that, you might neglect the most important things that the Lord for sure has given you to do. In our contemporary culture, we kind of have a collective ADD, attention deficit disorder. We can't give sustained attention to people, ideas, or even the state of our own heart. And these things are indispensable to cultivating the intimacy of relationships and depth of understanding and wisdom that we need for life. So in these priorities, these are the other two, we need to learn to be attentive. Take time to be attentive to God, to the reality of His presence and our need of Him. Spiritual disciplines, which are very important, and by the way, those are both private and public. This is a spiritual discipline, coming to church on Sunday and worshiping with the family of God. As is fellowship, as is service, as is evangelism, as is personal devotion time, personal prayer, corporate prayer. There are both public and private spiritual disciplines, all of which play into this idea of attentiveness. Attentiveness isn't you only, isn't merely you alone in a closet, although you should spend that time too. But it's also others and giving them opportunity to speak into your life. A lot of times we have blinders and don't see things, but we need to be attentive to God. We need to be attentive to the fact that the Spirit is present with us, that He desires to do a work in us, and that he longs for us to experience his formative and sustaining power in our lives. Spiritual disciplines are a means to carve out the time and the space needed in our overly busy lives to practice the presence of God. That's a necessity. We also need to be attentive to the story of God. Spiritual disciplines is also a way to do this, to help us to come back to the vision of God continually to his personal presence, his just reign, his perfect peace. And inhabiting this story of God means immersion into that story. We'll have to immerse ourselves into it. 
We're surrounded by competing stories all the time. And we need practices that draw us again and draw our attention back to the story that for all of us trumps all other knockoffs. Finally, we need practices that will help us be attentive to what's going in the lives of others around us. Practices such as fellowship, spiritual questions to one another, not just what's going on in sports or Pinterest or whatever, but serious questions, questions that penetrate the heart. We need to petition for the lives of those who are around us, considering how we might love them and how we might stir them to love and good deeds as well. This stuff takes time. And we need practices that help us to pay attention to the reality and condition of our own hearts. Boy, my life unchecked is an idol-making factory. And not only does it make idols, it makes up all the reasons and excuses of why they're necessary if I don't put it in check continually. Spiritual disciplines help to carve out room to pay attention to our hearts, see where they are, take assessments, and realign. But if we're going to do this, if we're going to set the right priorities, that by the way, in many respects, there is a constant in right priorities of the Lord, but there's also a relative way that that plays out in each of our lives. And our lives are always changing, which means, guess what? Those priorities are always changing too. The Lord stays central, but all the rest of them and how that looks is always changing. This is why we need continually this attentiveness. It's not like there's a formula. Notice I didn't give one. There's not. There's discerning. A discerning that the Lord will have to lead us in. And the only way we can discern is if we pay attention to the attentiveness needed to God, right, to the story of God, to our own hearts and to other people. That's the only way that we're going to know how to prioritize. And the only way that we're going to be able to attentive is if we have rhythms of life that are conducive to that kind of attentiveness. This is my third and final point on an application of be still and know that I am the Lord. Rhythms of life. In the Old Testament, the lives of God's people were shaped by particular rhythms of life, both the day, the week, and the year. Matter of fact, in the early centuries of the Christian era, and also, by the way, for most of the 2,000-plus years that Christianity's been around, these same types of rhythms have existed. Rhythms of life for the people of God. Although in the Christian era, they have a distinctively Christian character. Listen to it, ready? So the rhythms of the day for every pious Israelite would be to wake up and recite the Shema at least twice every day, both morning and evening. Listen to the, how this realigns your perspective. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Realignment twice a day to the vision of God. Christians, they would daily recite the Lord's Prayer. Listen to how this realigns. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for giving us this day our daily provisions and for forgiving us our sins. May we also forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. What a prayer to say twice a day. And what about the week? Those are rhythms for the day. How about the week? The lives of God's people Israel were shaped by established patterns of work, rest, and worship which was established by the seventh day of creation, Saturday, which was devoted to not eating by the sweat of your brow, like the curse, but it was devoted to living out a vision of God, a vision of shalom, where God is with his people as they come together for worship, and he rules over them, and they worship him. It's a vision for the end that they're practicing once a week to remind themselves of where they're heading. Guess what we do? We change that from the seventh day to the first day in light of what? The new creation that came with resurrection. It's a Christianized version. But we do the same things. We come together, we cease from our occupation of living by the sweat of our brow, and we come together where God reigns over all of us, where His Spirit is present, and we worship Him. We even take communion, covenant renewal, where we remember all that Christ has accomplished for us, and look forward to him accomplishing it once and for all, a realignment of our lives every single week, a rhythm of life. 
What about yearly? The Israelites were formed through rhythms of inhabiting the stories of the mighty deeds of God through all the festivals, commemorating what God has done among them from the exodus of Egypt to the law, giving the law at Sinai to miraculous provisions in the wilderness, the ongoing provision demonstrated by the first fruits and the annual harvest. These are things they celebrated God for, his hand in it all. This liturgical calendar was a communal embodied set of rhythms for remembrance. And we do the same, Christians. We exchange these seasons for Advent, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. We can say Christmas and all that's associated with it, Easter and all that's associated with it. Rhythms of remembrance centered on the life story of Jesus and God's mighty deeds of salvation through him. These are important rhythms for our lives in which we can give attentiveness so we can rightly prioritize our lives. Many Christians today kind of suffer from collective arrhythmia. We so prize freedom and spontaneity that we've lost the rich formative significance of rhythm and ritual in our lives. The things that they're a ritual for are the most important things in life. Breathing, eating, sex. We tend to do these things ritualistically, not randomly, because they're the more important things in life. How much more important are the things of God to be done ritualistically, to have rhythms that will facilitate the attentiveness we need? Well, conclusion, be still and know that he's God. Align your life to God and his kingdom vision for this world. Let your busyness not be a response due to the deceit of Satan and the call of the world as he appeals to your flesh. If you seek to gain your life on his terms, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for God's sake, for his kingdom and his set rightness, you'll find it. May the peace, the shalom, the wholeness of the Lord be with you. You're dismissed.